Ask for a favor. Uh huh. Can I hear you say, come on? Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Listen, I love Drew Brown from Pittsburgh. Come on. But his friends are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Not ramping down. We're just getting started. Nothing stops this train. Thank you. God bless. And come on. On this episode of the Come On Network podcast, we will be talking with Sean Myers of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling as he discusses everything going on in the WWE, a little bit in All Elite Wrestling, while the coronavirus pandemic is still taking over our world. Come on, Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a special thank you to Anchor, a great resource for anyone looking to start podcasting. Anchor pretty much does everything for you, and they do it absolutely free. Anchor will post your podcast onto the various podcast platforms, track your listeners, even match you with some sponsors. Also, follow us on Twitter at ComeOnNetPod, C-O-M-O-N-N-E-T-P-O-D. Donnie Chedrick, I'm with Joe Smeltzer, Jack Hillgrove, and this time Kyle Dawson also joining us. Want to give a little bit of an introduction for each of us after last time. The first episode we did, we just dove right into the NFL draft, and that pretty much took all of our time. So first, we'll just go around the room, uh, give a little introduction. All of us being Waynesburg University uh, alums or current students, so really don't need to mention that. But you know, just give two or three points on you know why anybody should care about your your takes in the sports world jack we'll start with you well thank you donnie uh my name is jack hillgrove and if you live in the city of pittsburgh or are familiar with pittsburgh sports mainly the steelers or the university of pittsburgh that last name should ring a bell uh my grandpa is bill hillgrove he is the voice of the pittsburgh steelers has been for 26 years and uh, 51 years of pit basketball, 46 of pit football. Uh, I had the distinct honor and pleasure of interning with the Washington Wild Things as the broadcast intern last summer uh, with Kyle Dawson, who you'll hear from in a couple of minutes. And uh, I've lived in Pittsburgh my whole life. I've pretty much revolved my life, future career choice, and what I do for most of my days uh, around sports. So uh, I think I can provide some good insight, especially coming from the city. And uh, yeah, should be, <laughs> should be a, a good time. I look forward to you know growing with you guys on this podcast and uh, hopefully providing somewhat intelligent uh, takes and uh, angles as far as what's been going on uh, in the sports world. All right. Well, I'm Joe Smeltzer. I'm going to be graduating from Waynesburg University uh, in two days with a degree in communication with an emphasis on journalism. As far as sports go and uh, why, uh, my opinion is somewhat relevant. Uh, basically, as long as I can remember, my identity has been kind of intertwined with sports. Uh, 
I have a particular interest in baseball history, and that interest has allowed me to be able to name the winner and loser of each World Series uh, dating back to 1903, with exceptions in 1904, 1994, and possibly 2020 as well. But I just uh, love talking about sports. I have I've been involved with sports both at Waynesburg and in internships. I interned with the Washington Wild Things too summers ago where I really got the feel of being around the everyday basis of a professional sports team. And then last year I interned at the observer reporter also in Washington PA where I covered events ranging from WPIAL, WPIAL, excuse me, playoff softball and baseball games to events such as golf tournaments. So I've been involved with sports uh, as a fan for my entire life. In the past few years, I've been getting involved from a professional standpoint and uh, hopefully we'll be earning a paycheck off it, off it as either, um, either or a sports writer and announcer for quite some time. So that's just a little about me, and I hope that I can uh, add something uh, to the table. Hey, everyone. Uh, Kyle Dawson, as Donnie mentioned, obviously a, a Waynesburg University graduate. And, and Jack mentioned that I've worked with the Washington Wild Things or that he interned uh, with us at the Wild Things. I've been the voice uh, of the team for the last two seasons, uh, going on a third here once the 2020 season gets going. Uh, and last year was humbled and honored to, to win the Frontier League's Broadcaster of the Year Award. Um, but, but really going back to kind of what Joe and Jack said, I've just been a sports fan my entire life, uh, really, that I uh, can remember. I was in the backyard uh, talking about sports or playing sports, um, throwing balls off the wall to, to, and commentating that as it went along. I mean, I've been following Pittsburgh sports and, and really national sports for the better part of the time that I can remember spending on this earth. Um, so, I, I mean, I used to write a blog. There, there's a bunch of things that, that I do that I would say make my uh, sports opinion maybe at least a little bit better than the average person. Uh, I certainly don't think that I have these amazing takes or that I should be being paid for uh, takes that I'll bring to you on the podcast. I, I'd also like to say I'm, I'm happy to join uh, anytime with, with these three guys and uh, be a part of, of what I think should be a pretty successful podcast. And um, excited to do it, but uh, to give you a little bit more of the background, I also work for the Trib Live High School Sports Network uh, as a writer and a broadcaster uh, covering WPIAL athletics, uh, whether it's football, baseball, softball, uh, basketball, volleyball, hockey, all, all the nine yards there when it comes to high school sports in District 7 of the PIAA here in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've been doing that going back to my junior year of college. So I believe that would take us back to 2016. Um, so I've been doing that. And, and again, I've just been around sports and, and consume sports and, and pretty much everything I do, you know, is around sports. So uh, hopefully I can not sound like an idiot at times and, and bring you some insight on uh, from prep standpoint and from other things that uh, will help you learn a little bit more about sports or, or give you a, a different opinion at times. Well, I'll, I'll round out the order. Uh, I'm Donnie Chedrick. Um, I also uh, worked in baseball uh, after graduating from Waynesburg University. Uh, not with the Wild Things, however. Uh, I was in West Virginia working with the West Virginia Black Bears, uh, the short-season single-A affiliate of the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, the team that plays in Morgantown. Uh, not even sure if that season 
will happen this year uh, would not have really mattered for me. I, I worked with the Black Bears for two years. Uh, was not going to be back for this year, uh, but that season may or may not even happen as the coronavirus outbreak has continued to take over. Uh, I've also worked uh, in some local radio uh, at WJPA in Washington, PA, uh, as a news reporter and weekend anchor, also at 93.7 The Fan in Pittsburgh uh, as a producer. So that's pretty much all on me. Um, you know, I, I have lived and loved sports my entire life as the other three gentlemen on here with me have. Today on this episode, we'll break down the, the NFL draft, uh, give a little bit of our reaction, uh, also discuss the Rob Gronkowski to Tampa Bay trade and give our thoughts on that. Sean Myers joins us a little bit later on to talk WWE, AEW, and how they're dealing with this pandemic. Uh, Tiger, Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, they're going to play some golf later on this month. We'll discuss that and also try to stump the smelts at the end. You guys heard Joe Smeltzer has that extensive baseball knowledge. We'll try to put him to the test at the end of today's episode. So, guys, let, let's jump into the NFL draft. Uh, the, the three of us that were on a few weeks ago, myself along with Jack and Joe, uh, going all through the draft, you, know, you gave our mock drafts. We'll get to those in a moment. But uh, we also talked about if this draft would be good for viewership and after further review it certainly was it was the most watched NFL draft ever uh, 15.6 million watched round one that was just the average uh, a 37 percent increase from last year uh, the peak was right around the time the Dolphins and Chargers were picking in the first round that's when nearly 20 million people were watching at one time uh, I believe it was 55 million or so that watched the draft in total on Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday afternoon. So, uh, Joe and Jack, let, let's jump into the review of our mock drafts. Um, you know, Kyle can add some input and some thoughts on the NFL draft, but um, I know that the three of us were the ones that did mock drafts. So, Jack, starting with you. How did your mock draft do? Obviously, it was just the first round, but out of 32, how many picks were you able to hit on? Uh, well, I kind of broke it down into two categories, uh, picks that I got absolutely correct and picks where uh, the team didn't pick the player that I chose, but somebody in the same position group. Uh, so eight of my 32 picks were correct. Uh, not very good, and a lot of them uh, were near the top of the draft. Uh, Joe Burrow, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Tua Tagovailoa, Justin Herbert, uh, out of the top six, I got those correct. Austin Jackson to Miami at 18. Jordan Love I threw in there. I had the Packers trading up to 19 with the Raiders taking Jordan Love, but they got him at 26 trading up. And then I had Isaiah Wilson to Tennessee at 29. Uh, and as far as correct positions, just different guys, uh, including the eight I originally got correct. There were six more. Uh, for a total of 14, I had uh, the Giants at four taking a tackle. It was Tristan Worfs, not Thomas. Uh, I had the Browns taking a tackle at 10, a Thomas, not Jedrick Wills. 
I had the Raiders taking a wide receiver at 12. I had CeeDee Lamb, not Henry Ruggs. At 13, I had the Buccaneers taking a tackle. I had Mekhi Becton, not Tristan Wirfs. At number 20, I had the Jaguars taking a linebacker, Murray, not Clavon Chason. And at 21, the Philadelphia Eagles taking a receiver, uh, Justin Jefferson, not Jalen Rager. Uh, so 14 out of 32 correct positions, 8 out of 32 correct players. Take that for how you will. Uh, I don't consider myself an NFL draft expert by any means, but uh, I particularly had more fun covering, if you will, or following, I guess I should say, the NFL draft this year because, I don't know, maybe mainly because uh, there was nothing else going on in the sports world, but uh, I thought that it was a good year for this to happen for the NFL draft because I thought it was a particularly uh, deep class with a lot of guys that I think that can make immediate impacts uh, on the ball clubs they've been drafted to. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll talk about the Steelers a little bit later, but I was particularly excited about their draft as well. Well, I had seven of the 32 picks uh, correct, and there were several instances where um, I didn't tally this up uh, beforehand, but there were several instances where I had the correct position um, going to a team, but it wasn't the exact player. Uh, probably the best example is 10 and 11. I had the Browns going, uh, Makai Becton from Louisville offensive tackle, and the Jets taking Jedrick Wills from Alabama. Those two picks were flip-flopped as the Browns went with Wills and the Jets went with Becton. So that's a little frustrating. I also had a receiver from Alabama going to the Broncos, but it was Henry Ruggs, not Jerry Judy. Like Jack, I had Justin Jefferson going to the Eagles, but they took a different receiver instead. And I also had a lineman going to Tampa Bay, but it was Andrew Thomas who was not picked by the Buccaneers. So as usual, um, I was more uh, wrong than right when it came to the draft. But as far as watching the draft went, I think it just reaffirmed that how different the NFL is compared to other sports and that it is so powerful. And when everything else goes down, football is obviously taking a hit too. But when you compare it to other sports, it just seems like more people are caring about football right now when it's supposed to be you know, the NBA and NHL playoffs supposed to be the start of baseball season. But yet we're not talking about those seasons not happening as much as we're talking about what the NFL has been doing to compensate for obviously unprecedented circumstances. So I figured I'd enjoy watching the draft. I did enjoy watching the draft probably more so even than I do most years because the whole idea of a player dressing up in a six-figure outfit to shake hands with Roger Goodell and then get a jersey. That was never very exciting to me. I'm all, I've always been more interested in the reaction players who are sitting at home with their families and what their reactions are when getting drafted. And we saw a lot more of that this year than we have really in any year since the draft became a spectacle, probably within the past two decades. So I loved watching the draft. Um, definitely props to the NFL for keeping it going as scheduled and football is definitely king among the professional sports and there isn't a close second and that's more evident than ever i think during this pandemic yeah i always love watching the draft and I, I i i just knew that the nfl would probably hit it out of the park with this one uh yeah there was nothing else really for people to watch you know especially no live sports this was the first thing in you know about a month that people really had to look forward to if you were 
a sports fan, and the NFL took advantage of that. Um, I, I thought the whole setup with, you know, quote unquote, Roger Goodell's basement, whether or not that was his actual basement or a studio, uh, doesn't really matter. Um, I, I thought there, there were a few kinks that, that went on, you know, during the, the three-day course of the draft, but otherwise I thought ESPN um, and NFL Network doing a combined effort really uh, played it well. Um, I really don't think they could have done anything better. As for my mock draft, um, I, I brought up the rear. I gave myself a five and a half, and that's because I had a trade where I had the Chargers trading with the Detroit Lions. However, both players that I had to those teams ended up going where I expected. So if I don't have that trade in my mock draft, uh, the, the, the same exact thing happens because Justin Herbert was picked by the Chargers and Jeff Okuda was selected by the Detroit Lions. Uh, the only other pick I had outside of the top six was Henry Ruggs third, the wide receiver from Alabama, going to the Las Vegas Raiders. And no surprise that the Raiders simply picked the guy with the fastest 40 time. One of the other things about the draft that I think people really overblow, um, and Kyle Dawson will bring you into the fray on this one, whenever it comes to grading a draft, uh, everyone is so quick to say who had a good draft, who had a bad draft, but I really don't buy into that stuff. Um, you know, How does somebody really know who had a good one and who had a bad one? Because a couple years down the line, you could end up being – a whole 180 on your opinion of some of the greatest college players in history have become some of the biggest busts in NFL history. And then guys we've never heard of that are drafted in the fifth round or later go on to become hall of famers. Uh, and then one other thing I just wanted to point out and, you know, anyone who ends up listening to this, that is a Browns fan uh, won't be happy, but I looked back to 2014 NFL.com gave the Browns an A- minus uh, for their draft in 2014 and based it on the, the first four guys they selected. Johnny Manziel, a first-round pick. Justin Gilbert, a first-round pick. Joel Batonio uh, drafted in the second round. Now, he's gone on to have a very good career, a multi-time all-pro offensive lineman. And then Terrence West was a, a running back selected in the third round. Three of those four guys are completely out of the sport of football, and that was a draft that was only six years ago. One of those guys has stuck around and been a good player. So how does anybody really know who has a good or bad draft? The Kansas City Chiefs got rated a, a B-plus for a draft that they selected Patrick Mahomes and Kareem Hunt, who the, the first year they were together were one of the most electric combinations in football. Uh, so, Kyle, I'll bring you in. Uh, going to the Steelers, though, first, thoughts on on their draft? Uh, you know, your, your favorite guy they selected and maybe a sleeper um, that you see out of the, the Steelers picks? Sure. Well, let me let me preface the, the Steelers question with I want to add a little bit uh, on, on what the three of you said on, on the draft format. I, I thought the format, and I only got to watch – 
uh, being what I'm working at in Amazon's warehouse right now. I only got to watch about an hour of the first two nights, uh, physically watch what was on uh, the TV at the other points. I just kind of had uh, in the background of work uh, the audio of what was going on, so I wasn't actually seeing what was going on. I, I thought that the format was better. Uh, than it has been in years past. And I don't know if that's a hot take or if, if that's something that maybe other people here or uh, that are listening agree with. Um, I like Joe. Uh, I like the reactions coming from the living rooms and the families. And I think that's more pure than what you're going to get in a draft setting. Uh, at the same time, I'll say I think I missed the reaction of fans, uh, whether they're at the draft or just you know kind of seeing everything else unfold. Uh, I do think that ESPN, as Donnie said, ESPN and NFL Network combining was a great move for this draft. Uh, I thought it gave a lot more insight. It gave a lot more than just the Mel Kuypers, just the Booger McFarlands of the world. Uh, if you're picking one or the other, I, I think Trey Wingo was fantastic as well uh, in what was obviously a very uh, challenging role. Uh, but to the to the Steelers question, I, I liked the draft. Uh, I and I know I, I don't. Donnie said uh, mentioned about the grades and and how well people can determine how the draft went for teams at, at this point. I don't think that you can very well, um, but I, I think you can do a couple of things. And, and when you're looking to put a grade on the draft or to say, hey, the Steelers had uh, just to use an example, a good draft uh, for now and what we think it will be, or a bad draft, and that's. Uh, number one, if you feel some team needs at positions, I thought the Steelers did that pretty well. Uh, I thought other teams, there's other teams that all list off if we end up in a, a big discussion about this, that I think did that really well. Uh, team needs being one of them. Uh, two, uh, fitting the style of play or fitting the player with the organization. Uh, something I think the Ravens did really well with Patrick Queen in round one. Uh, everything that I've seen and, and you know, even beyond just Patrick Queen, uh, what the Ravens were able to do, but finding fits with your organization too, I, th I think is an important part uh, of the draft process. But for the, from the Steelers perspective, I, I think without a first round pick, if you want a couple Minka Fitzpatrick in as, as a quote unquote first round pick for this year, I think it helps the draft class significantly. Uh, but I've also seen draft grades, and this kind of goes to Donnie's point as well. Uh, I've seen them as high as A minus or A, and I've seen them as low as, as D minus. And I, I think that's uh, probably partially experts' opinions and, and thinking different things of their rankings, whether it's Chase Claypool and where he was at in the receiver rankings for people or, or Kevin Dotson. and uh, whatever it may be, you know, any of the guys that the Steelers picked or any team picked, I think factors in uh, if if one guy at NFL.com thinks that that guy is worse than the guy does at ESPN or CBS Sports, uh, then it obviously affects those grades. And, and you see that more of a, a disparallel with all of the grades going on for all of the teams. Uh, but from, from the Steelers perspective, like I said, I thought they had a really good draft. Uh, I think Chase Claypool is going to be a very good NFL player uh, from all the video uh, all of the articles and things that I've read, I know Brian Kelly talked the other day and, and Kevin Colbert on 93.7 The Fan the other day as well here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I think he's a very versatile wide receiver that the Steelers really haven't had in the last couple of years or maybe even going back to a decade. A guy that can play outside, but that can also play in the slot and kind of plug up the middle a little bit. I think that's something that the Steelers have been missing, especially last year uh, without good tight end play, whether it was Nick Vanette or Vance McDonald being hurt and not being able to play. Uh, if you can plug the middle 
with a Chase Claypool out of the slot, a big body, a physical body, a guy that still has great hands and and that I think can be a home run threat. I think that's a great pick for them. Uh, I think they got a lot of flack, the Steelers did, from, from fans in this area about the Anthony McFarland pick, the Antoine Brooks pick. Uh, I think they got the flack because Maryland's not a very good football team in terms of wins and losses. But I'll say this, and I've been thinking this since the draft uh, actually took place. I don't care what Maryland's record was when it comes to drafting players from Maryland. I, Pitt is is kind of this way, just as a fan of Pitt, Penn State's the same way. There's other schools in the country that are the same way. You can be a, a mediocre borderline bad football program in college and still pump out NFL talent uh, that is pretty good. Uh, so I'm not saying Anthony McFarland and Antoine Brooks are going to be studs in the NFL, but what I think McFarland does well, and I'm sure that all of us will, will talk about this when it comes to the Steelers at some point, but McFarland can spell James Conner a little bit, 6.7 a carry at Maryland last year. He works into that running back mix really well, I think, whether it's Conner, McFarland, Snell. I, I don't know if Samuels has a spot on the roster anymore. Uh, but something that I think he'll do really well is mix into that. Uh, I like the high Smith pick. I, I like pretty much every pick that the Steelers made. The one that I'll point out is maybe a sleeper, I guess, to finish answering Donnie's question. I think I don't know that Kevin Dotson has been regarded as a sleeper, but I think he's got the potential from what I've seen to start day one, potentially at, at guard. Uh, and if it's not day one, I think he'll be very much so in the mix over the next few years. And I think all of these guys, including Alex Highsmith, Chase Claypool, uh, Carlos Davis in the seventh round as a defensive tackle fits a position of need uh, where they needed a depth defensive tackle. Uh, Anthony Ciccolo being gone obviously helps High Smith. Uh, all of these guys, I, I think the Steelers had a really good draft in terms of fitting team needs and getting talented athletic players that are for now and for the future. Yeah, so I kind of broke down my uh, Steelers draft class, and I, I don't consider myself a football expert or an expert talent scout. So I just kind of broke down each pick and I put either a question mark or a, a W uh, next to the player's name based on uh, the W meaning. I think it's a win for the Steelers, a win for the player that they drafted question mark is just somebody I'm not so sure about. So Chase Claypool, uh, I, I think is a win, uh, a four, four guy. And he's the first guy to, Run a four four forty that's above six four uh, since Megatron did it, uh, which I think is pretty darn good company. Uh, that four four forty time was seventh among wideouts. Uh, his bench press was fifth among wideouts, vertical fourth. So the measurables check out for him, uh, and you combining that with uh, the Steelers just really not missing when it comes to drafting wideouts, I think uh, is something to be excited about. I don't think he'll be. A dynamic playmaker right away. I think you'll see Chase Claypool uh, be big in run block and uh, be big in the uh, in the power running game because he can maul people, uh, and we've seen that on film. Um, I think it might take for him a little a little bit of time to adjust to the Steelers' offense, like it would with any player. Um, but they're saying potentially his ceiling could be as high as you know comparing him to Mike Evans, which I think. If that's the case, and if he can get there, that is an absolute win for the Steelers at 49. Alex Highsmith, I think, is another W because uh, I don't really think he could be worse than Anthony Ciccolo at some times. Uh, good speed, a 4-7-40, fourth uh, ranked among defensive linemen, and he was fourth in the nation in sacks, 15. 
Uh, I think he's better and cheaper than Anthony Ciccolo. Anthony Ciccolo's cap hit was up near five million this year. So them being able to cut him and replace him with a guy like Alex Highsmith, uh, I think is a huge win. And Dabo Swinney, the head coach of the Clemson Tigers, uh, said that he was one of the best, if not the best uh, players on the defensive side of the ball that Clemson saw all year last year. And he said the more and more he watched Alex Highsmith on film, he said that he could have played for anybody in the country and the more he liked him. So I think uh, uh, 102, that is a, a big pickup for the Steelers. Anthony McFarland uh, is a question mark for me. Uh, I think that uh, he has a little bit of trouble. I've read that he, he tiptoes on stretch plays and he needs uh, a lot of space to operate. And I don't think that that really uh, accumulates well to the Steelers' offense. And I don't think at 5'8", 205, he has what it takes to maul some people over. And, you know, I, I think it's really... Uh, not that great uh, of reporters and scouts to come out and say that the kid before even playing a down of NFL football has character issues. But if issues like that arise, I think they're worth noting. Um, so that's why I have him down as a question mark. But uh, Matt Canada is the quarterback's coach, quote unquote, for the Steelers. I think he'll be a little more involved in the offensive decisions uh, than just being the QB's coach. Um, so, and that's a guy that they're familiar with, Matt Canada, an interim assistant offensive coordinator at Maryland a couple of years ago. Uh, so maybe a familiar face, uh, on the offensive side of the ball, coaching wise could be good for McFarland jr. Kevin Dotson, Kyle, I agree with you. I think it's an absolute W and I think it could go down as the biggest steal uh, of the fourth round, uh, when it's all said and done, you know, the, the right tackle for Louisiana Lafayette, Kevin Hunt, he got a lot more attention coming out of, uh, this year's draft class because uh, of his measurables and the way that he did things. Uh, and I think Kevin Dotson kind of slipped under the radar and why he kind of slipped to the fourth round, but I think he's a talented football player. His fundamentals are great. He's wide and big and can you know block up to two guys at some point. And most importantly, he adds depth to let's face it, an aging offensive line. Uh, I think the Stefan Wisniewski signing was good. I think that'll be a guy that can come in and start. And then uh, Dotson can be a guy that can be a plug-and-play guy, sit behind, learn behind guys like Wisniewski and DeCastro, who are veteran guards in this league and could be a starting guard for the Steelers for years to come. The last two guys I have question marks for, Antoine uh, Brooks Jr. and Carlos Davis, because um, yeah, they're fifth and seventh round picks. Uh, I think Brooks Jr. lacks some size at safety, but he's a good open field tackler and could uh, potentially see some uh, packages as well linebackers. So we'll see there. Uh, Carlos Davis, a seventh round pick. How really good can he be? Some have proved to be you know, irrelevant. Some have proved to be more than they're worth. Uh, he stops the run well. He uh, is sub 540 time, which proved or turned a lot of heads uh, when it came to the NFL Combine. But, you know, a lot of the experts say that he's more ath- more of an athlete, not a football player. And, you know, becoming a good nose tackle and a D lineman in the NFL might take some adjusting. So we'll see. I think, you know, Kyle, I agree with you. They address, address some depth issues. They addressed some areas of need. And uh, like every draft class, they, they got younger in spots where they needed to get younger. I'm really excited for the wide receiver room. It's young. It's got a potential for worlds of talent. Hopefully Juju Smith-Schuster can fix some uh, things that went wrong last year and become a good leader for a really young wide receivers group. But I think it has a lot of potential. And 
Uh, there's a lot to be excited about here when you look back at this 2020 draft class for the Steelers. Um, the pick I'm most excited about and most of the hype about this draft class is generated around Claypool, which makes sense because he was the Steelers' first choice of the 2020 draft. But I'm really excited about Alex Highsmith for a few reasons. One, as Jack touched on, he's coming into a position that does not have a lot of depth as evidenced by how many snaps Anthony Chickler has been getting the past few years. Two, he's not going to come in under the microscope that most Steelers' defensive draft picks are. You look at your, you know, T.J. Watt, Bud Dupree, Jarvis Jones, Ziggy Hood, all of these guys taken with the Steelers' uh, first-round picks all playing on the defensive end, and they come in immediately under a microscope. Highsmith is a third-round pick. So that there kind of eases the pressure at least right away. Also, the fact that he went through a small school in Charlotte, then wasn't playing under a high microscope um, in college to begin with. And he's also getting high accolades. You, Jack, you mentioned uh, Dabo Swinney's comment on him. Uh, Mel Kuyper said that Highsmith was his favorite pick of the entire third round. The Steelers didn't pick until late in the third round, so that really says a lot. I just think that Highsmith coming in, at least from the outset, as a depth guy at a position that does not have a lot of depth is going to be huge, and I really like in the limited film I've watched on him what he brings to the table, and I just have a feeling that with the Steelers' success of drafting defensive players historically and defensive players from small schools going back to guys like Donnie Shell, Greg Lloyd, and Jack Lambert. Um, I'm excited for what this guy can bring to the table, and I think that a few years down the line, we could be looking at Highsmith as a huge get late in the third round of this draft. Joe, I, I'd agree with you. Uh, I think Alex Highsmith is probably the sleeper for the Steelers draft, and for a lot of the reasons why you just said, uh, being a small school guy out of Charlotte, uh, but he can go into 2021, 20, not this season coming up, but the one after, and potentially be a starter on the opposite edge of T.J. Watt. We don't know what's in the long-term plan for Bud Dupree. Uh, he, he signed the franchise tag, but if he has a down year or he, again, plays out of his mind, the Steelers probably can't afford to give Bud Dupree a big contract. So that's where you hope that you can insert Alex Highsmith in there. Another thing, uh, Daniel Valente uh, of Steelers Depot, who we had on for the draft episode, uh, talking with him after that uh, Friday night portion of the draft, he, he loved the Alex Highsmith pick. Uh, a guy with a lot of upside, uh, depth most importantly for next season. But he also said if he played for a big school or a power five, he would have heard his name much earlier as in mid or early to mid second round, as opposed to when he heard it in the latter parts of the third round. Uh, and then real quick, my, my favorite Steelers selection, um, a guy that's been highlighted, Kevin Dotson, uh, j just a mauler of a run blocker, um, pro football focus, which I'm not a huge fan of their ratings. Uh, you know, I, I take their ratings with a whole shaker of salt with a lot of the stuff I see from them. But PFF rated Dotson as the as one of the best run blockers in the entire draft, and the Steelers got him at pick 135. And he also has a legitimate shot to get playing time as early as week one. But moving on to another big football move that happened recently, 
the Gronk and Brady party has been reunited. Uh, Rob Gronkowski traded from the Patriots. First off, he came out of retirement. And this, all of this news happened one day in in the midst of about forty five minutes to an hour. Uh, Gronk was out of retirement. He had already gotten his physical uh, that he was somebody that can play this year, and the Patriots agreed to trade Gronkowski along with a seventh-round pick to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a fourth-round pick. And it all went by very quickly, but Brady and Gronk reunited. So the 40-plus-year-old the quarterback and the injury-riddled 31-year-old tight end have that historic connection, but how good will it be in Tampa Bay? Uh, Gronk, a five-time Pro Bowler, four-time All-Pro, 79 touchdowns, in his career, some consider Gronk to be the most dominant or best tight end in NFL history. I don't know if I would put him at number one just because of the injury concerns that he has had, but if he comes back at least around 100% and can play like he could in New England, I certainly think Tampa Bay could be a scary team out of the NFC, but what are the expectations around the room for the Buccaneers going into 2020? The Buccaneers as a team, um, I think it's it's different. See, I, I, I'm back and forth because you look at their offense on paper with the addition of Brady and Gronk, it should be a playoff team. But you have to take into account that uh, I, I think um, at least, the, well, the Saints I think are by far the better team uh, in that division. And I think the other two teams uh, did a lot to get better uh, either in free agency uh, or the draft. I think Carolina um, with Matt Rule taking the helm has his quarterback and Teddy Bridgewater, who uh, played really well uh, in relief of Drew Brees last year. And I think they drafted well on the defensive side of the ball and the Atlanta Falcons picking up Todd Gurley to boost their run game and uh, addressing some need defensively in the draft as well. The NFC South is going to be very interesting. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how Tom Brady trans- translates to Bruce Arians' system. Uh, I think a lot of what Tom Brady had to um, credit for his success was the offensive line in New England. I don't think it's as good in Tampa Bay, um, but we'll see. Uh, I, it's always You could always sit there and say, well, Tampa Bay is going to make the playoffs. They're going to be in the Super Bowl or... It's easy to say, well, Tom Brady isn't what he used to be. He's 43 years old. Uh, I think it's going to be a dumpster fire. I think it could go either way. Uh, I'm leaning more towards the fact that Tampa Bay is going to be a much better football team in 2020. I think Rob Gronkowski, talking about him, uh, it's a huge W for the Bucs. It only took him a fourth rounder, a four-time 1,000-yard receiver, nearly 80 touchdowns in his career. Um, he lost a lot of weight, it looks like. You know, I think he'll put it back on uh, whenever football resumes to get back in football shape. But, you know, if he s- tries to stick to this slender build, might make him faster, might make him more athletic in the translation with that height. I think it makes him harder to cover. Um, I think right now, if, right now, I think Rob Gronkowski still is a top five tight end in football. And... I don't think O.J. Howard was to begin with. Uh, I think O.J. Howard for Tampa Bay was kind of a bust. Uh, He was a guy that a lot of people were talking about coming out of Alabama. Uh, A dynamic, big, strong, athletic, a Gronkowski-type tight end coming out of college. Uh, And he really didn't live up to it. Was he good? Sure, but I don't think he was 
uh, a top five caliber tight end like I think Rob Gronkowski is. That's another upgrade for Tampa Bay. They upgraded offensively at quarterback from Jameis to Brady, now tight end from Howard to Gronk. I think their run game is still in a little bit of question, but if anything, like we've seen before to Tom Brady, he's won with running back by committee. Uh, and you combine all of that with Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, and that wide receiver room. I think Tampa Bay has a lot to be excited about. I'm going to give you a hot take, and I think it's something that you said on the back end there, Jack, that I disagree with almost wholeheartedly. I think O.J. Howard at, at this point, number one, he's not a bust, and I'm not saying that you, you think that he is necessarily at this point, but uh, number two, I don't think Gronk is an upgrade over O.J. Howard. Uh, a younger guy, uh, Donnie brought up the Gronk injury problems that he's had over the course of his career. I'm, I'm glad that Jack brought up the height and weight. I mean, he's listed on pro football references as 6'6", 268. He doesn't look like that right now. If anybody saw him host WrestleMania, I've seen him post football. You're talking about a guy that in 2018, the last time that he played, played 13 games, had 682 total yards on 47 receptions. That was his second worst amount of receptions since 2014. That's a year that he spent, uh, or 2016, when he played only eight games due to injury. That would be the worst in total of receptions on the season for Rob Gronkowski. I think it's an aging tight end at a position that is like an offensive lineman is in a lot of cases, uh, brutalized at the line with hits at the line and blocking. Uh, I don't see Rob Gronkowski is a upgrade over OJ Howard. I think he's obviously a big piece to have and it gives Tom Brady a toy that he has always had uh, in New England is a guy that'll fill the middle of the field and, and he'll still make catches and receive attention because of the pedigree of, of tight end that Rob Gronkowski is. Uh, but I, I don't, I wouldn't crown him as the savior to that offense. I, I think the offense should already have been really good. I think OJ Howard having Tom Brady instead of Jameis Winston, uh, Brady being a guy that's always used his tight ends a little bit more effectively than, than a Winston or, or many other quarterbacks, frankly, in the National Football League. Uh, Brady's done that really well. I, I think OJ Howard's a really good tight end. Uh, you brought up Mike Evans. You brought up Chris Godwin. I'll add Justin Watson into the mix, a guy out of the slot that fits that prototypical mold of a slot receiver that Brady has had in his time in, in New England, whether that's Wes Welker, Julian Edelman, what have you. And then you've got a pretty good running back room uh, leading with Ronnie Jones uh, back there at tailback. Um, but I, I don't think that Rob Gronkowski is a savior under any circumstance. I think he's an aging tight end that will be the better part of 31 by the time the season rolls around. And I don't know that he'll be the same physical specimen uh, that he was when, when he was playing in New England. And I still have concerns if I'm Tampa Bay fans or if I'm football fans in general uh, of expectations for him because he's been out for a year. Uh, and that can do a lot to a guy that is, I think, at a skill position that uh, already had injury problems. And now he's going to start getting hit again for the first time in a couple of years. We'll see how it goes. Uh, obviously, that offense is going to be really good, though. And they've got another tight end in that room and Cameron Brait. Uh, that has the opportunity to to touch some passes as well and be effective in that offense. But the defense, uh, just to, to finish up here, and, and I'll let Joe go after, the defense was bad last year, frankly. Uh, 29th in points against, 
15th, which is middle of the pack in the league in yards allowed in total. Uh, that defense has to get better, and the offensive line has to get better because it seemed like in a lot of cases Jameis Winston uh, last year with Tampa Bay w- was just rushed into decisions, and that may have accounted for the 4.8% of pass interception rate that Jameis had last year, the 33-some-odd interceptions that he had. Uh, he wasn't protected very well. That kept O.J. Howard back in pass protection or in run blocking a lot more than maybe he should be be doing. Um, so we'll see. I think Bruce Arians getting a mind like Tom Brady and a quarterback like Tom Brady should obviously help that offense. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be too quick to say Rob Gronkowski is going to be what he was uh, when he was in New England. Yeah, I'll kind of touch on the last two points uh, you had, Kyle, uh, first. Uh, number one, obviously the Buccaneers defense last year wasn't the 85 Bears. I wouldn't even call it an average defense. But when you talk about statistics like 29th in the league and points allowed, you have to consider how many of those points were a direct result of Jameis Winston's decision-making. Now, in the switch from Jameis Winston to Tom Brady, obviously – Brady isn't the player he was 10 years ago, but he's not going to throw 30 interceptions. I don't think anybody has any doubt about that. So if nothing else, the Buccaneers offense is going to be more disciplined. It's going to keep the ball for longer and it's going to have, it's going to allow its defense to be on the field in more reasonable circumstances. So the idea of them being 29th in the league of points allowed again just isn't realistic because Brady throwing as many interceptions as Winston or even close to as many interceptions isn't realistic. The second point about the offensive line, getting Tristan worse in the top 15 is huge in fixing that problem because we know what the Bucks have skill position-wise even before signing Rob Gronkowski. Mike Evans and Chris Godwin probably – as good a one-two punch as any in the NFL. Now you're kind of adding some meat up front. We know what Iowa can do in terms of producing offensive linemen for the next level. So worse is going to go a long way, I think, if he is the player he's cracked up to be in the stabilizing that offensive line. So I think both defensively and up front, the two areas that are weaknesses for the Buccaneers, they're going to get better. I do agree with you on Rob Gronkowski. I think going back, Two years ago, when Gronkowski was still active, it was obvious throughout that season that while still a very quality tight end, he wasn't the Rob Gronkowski we had grown used to seeing. And I think no more was that evident than that game against the Steelers in December. Going back to 2017, Gronkowski absolutely tore up the Steelers, a lot of that being a result of Ryan Shazier not being there. And then 2018, he was a non-factor, and as a result, the Steelers held New England to 10 points and got their first win over Tom Brady in seven years. So I think right now, because of the weapons they have offensively and the potential to improve um, on offense and on defense, because it's hard to do much worse statistically than Tampa did last season, I think that alone makes Tampa Bay a pretty clear-cut number two in the NFC South, and a team that has a chance to snag a wild-card spot, I think, in the NFC. I don't think they're there in terms of winning a division. There's still too many question marks with Tampa Bay. In New Orleans, I still think it's one of the best teams in the NFC, but they're not too far away yet, and I think watching these guys develop, well, maybe not Tom Brady. He's not going to develop too much, but Tampa Bay is going to be a team to watch. And if nothing else, wherever they go, 
11 and 5 and 5 or 11, they're going to add another interesting storytelling element to the NFL with the Brady and Gronk connection back together. So I'm excited to see what this team does. And I really think that the playoffs are not out of the question, although a division title might be. I think Tampa Bay is a wild card team at best. Uh, and I, I do think it would have some play in terms of how well Rob Gronkowski does. Um, if Gronk is a shell of what he used to be or you know what he was in that last season, it may even mean no playoffs for Tampa Bay because can Tom Brady really solve all of those underlying issues that the Buccaneers have? I don't know. You know that has yet to be seen. But uh, as some of you guys said, New Orleans, I think, is still far and away the best team in the NFC South. Uh, I think it stays that way. However, I, I can't wait for those matchups. Uh, the NFL schedule release is supposed to be on May 9th, um, and I, I really can't wait to see what type of primetime matchups Tampa Bay gets because that's a team that has been pretty much deprived of those opportunities for the better part of the, the last two decades, basically since 2000. You know, they had that Super Bowl year in 2002, and, you know, they had some primetime opportunities after that. But December 1st, 2002 was the last time uh, Tampa Bay and New Orleans met on Sunday night football. Uh, something tells me that we'll get one of those matchups at least on Sunday night football this upcoming season. But from a WWE champion, Rob Gronkowski, to pro wrestling back in the ring. Things are still going on for WWE and AEW amid the coronavirus shutdowns. We have Sean Myers of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling coming up next right here on the Come On Network. And now we're pleased to be joined on the Come On Network by the host of the five-star podcast of wrestling, Sean Myers. Sean, a, a guy that has been around or watching professional wrestling basically since he's been in existence on the earth. Sean, the WWE and All Elite Wrestling have been the two major companies gaining some news because of their refusal basically to, to give up uh, on doing live events while the coronavirus uh, pandemic is going on. Uh, first and foremost, in your opinion, good move or bad move by both of those companies to keep things going? Well, first off, Donnie, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you mentioned that it's it's created some news I'm actually surprised that it hasn't created more buzz and more negative publicity for the companies, in particular WWE. Because you go back a handful of months and WWE continuing to do its shows in Saudi Arabia, that was a major headline. Of course, there was some major issues between the United States and Saudi Arabia, but it seemed like that was much more on the radar than what's happening now. And I think it's because there's so much other news concerning the coronavirus that you know sports is sort of secondary uh, for people like us it's obviously first and foremost but for the nation as a whole it's kind of been on the back burner i'm actually surprised that the the negative publicity has not been more extensive for wwe and for aew because i think it's really just a bad decision and, and a bad continue to do this really uninterrupted 
throughout this entire pandemic that's now reaching almost two months. Um, in a sense, I understand and why the companies are continuing to do it. They've been allowed to do it. Uh, ultimately, for people who aren't wrestling fans, they look at this and say, well, that's just embarrassing that that company is continuing to do that. I think the true hardcore wrestling fans are going to stop watching because of it. But I think maybe the people on the fringe will, you know, I, I just have no interest in, in watching a company that's endangering all of their employees, which really, in a sense, I think is exactly what both those companies have been doing. Uh, Sean, from an AEW standpoint, um, obviously mo much of the discussion around wrestling staying in business has been uh, toward WWE. But for AEW, a company that's um, not even really a year old in terms of uh, live events, uh, for them trying to build a casual audience and now uh, many people are unhappy with wrestling staying in business. How harmful could that be, do you think, to the reputation of AEW being that unlike WWE, they don't really have too much of a casual audience and most of the fans of AEW are just kind of um, hardcore um, fans of wrestling to begin with? It's an interesting scenario because, as you mentioned, it is a very recently formed company. They don't have the the option or really the luxury that WWE has in terms of a massive video library. So if Vince McMahon decided, hey, we're done running these shows, we're just going to go into the archives for the next month or so, they could put out some really great content to still engage the hardcore wrestling fans that you alluded to. Now, would they drop in ratings even more? Probably. But they could do that and still have some, some quality content. AEW does not have that option because they don't really have much in the vault. So they have to continue to find ways to produce weekly television, to produce two hours of content each and every Wednesday. And if they were to completely stop doing their, their matches, whether it be live or taped, then they would pretty much be struggling to fill those two hours. So I think in a sense, they have much more of a necessity to try to continue as scheduled than WWE would. You mentioned, would that turn off fans? I think AEW is pretty similar to NXT, which was originally the developmental of WWE, but is now developed into a full-fledged third brand in that they appeal to a niche audience, a very particular demographic of hardcore wrestling fans, not typically you know, the parents or siblings of wrestling fans, but they are the people that have watched wrestling their whole lives. They go on the internet to get the scoops, things like that. So I don't think many of those people have been tuning out. I think that casual fans are more so, they know that WWE continues to run these shows and they say, oh, maybe I'm going to frown upon that. I'm not sure that the AEW is really on their radar. So while AEW is not growing by adding those casual fans that you referenced, I think that the, for the most part, they will maintain the, their specific audience that they've had all along. So it's a different dynamic for sure between what Raw and SmackDown are setting out to accomplish in terms of the fan base and what AEW is trying to appeal to. Talking with Sean Myers of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling, Sean, you talked about the content, uh, potentially the content that AEW can produce. Uh, and on the flip side, WWE has taken the more cinematic approach uh, to some of its matches. We saw the Boneyard match uh, at WrestleMania with The Undertaker and AJ Styles. And of course, uh, the Firefly Funhouse match with John Cena and Bray Wyatt. Um, you've got to do what you can in times like these. And I think it's a creative approach to uh, the WWE. 
But do you see the way that these cinematic style matches are going on? And it sounds like they're going to continue to do so for as long as the pandemic's a thing, uh, realistically. Um, do you see this kind of tarnishing the off- authenticity or the uh, the way that WWE used to you know, do matches? Well, let's be honest. It's 2020. It's not 1985 or 1990. Because when you go back to a time like that, and I know Donnie did a project where he watched every WrestleMania, which began in 1985. The fans at that point really didn't understand what professional wrestling truly was. They maybe understood, okay, it's sort of fixed or whatever. But they didn't fully understand that it's basically like a action movie. I think the fans now, whether they be young fans, even as early as, you know, maybe eight to 10 years old, or obviously fans that are older than that, they realize what this is because the secrets of wrestling, I think have been revealed over the years and the internet has played a large part in that as well. So in a sense, you're not trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, but to your point, you still want to make it what professional wrestling has always lived upon which is telling a story, having it be believable enough that people become invested in it. Much like a movie, you want the movie, for the most part, to be realistic because if you go over the top, it's just like, what's the point? I'm not really into this because, you know, it's so unrealistic that I can't ever uh, draw a parallel to it in, in real life. I think with be has done cinematically, the Johnny Gargano and Tommaso Ciampa match, I thought that was well done because it still was a typical wrestling match that just added some some new elements to it. I actually really liked the match with The Undertaker and AJ Styles because it was a little bit far-fetched, but it still resembled a fight, if not a wrestling match. Yeah, it wasn't obviously in the ring. They weren't doing traditional wrestling moves, but there were still the same elements that you would see in a match. I thought the Firefly Funhouse was just a little too abstract for me to the point where it's like, if you see that, how can you really believe that anything else is even close to real? <laughs> you know, it kind of pulled the, the curtain back a little too far from my liking. But I thought that the other things that they've done, in particular AJ Styles and The Undertaker, that worked because that would be so much better than just having The Undertaker uh, at his current state try to go and have a regular match in the ring where he's just going to look sad and pathetic. So they were able to kind of work around his deficiencies deficiencies and shortcomings, and it really led to a great production. I think that they can keep stuff like that even after this pandemic ends, but you don't want to overdo it. If you're doing this you know, multiple times a week, it's no longer a novelty. It kind of becomes uh, you know, repetitive. And what they're doing at Money in the Bank with the two Money in the Bank matches that are taking place at the Titan Towers, starting at the bottom floor, going all the way up to the top. That's interesting, but if you do that too much, then it kind of loses its appeal. So I think you have to do it in moderation and not go over the top, uh, where I think kind of the Firefly Funhouse Sean, I'm glad you brought up the, the Money in the Bank matches. I was going to go there, but but since you did go there, I'll take a curveball and go to something else that involves uh, the situation right now with WWE and, and AEW, and that's that there, there's no fans in the building. Uh, I think it's 
uh, done a couple of things to, to the wrestling business. It's done a couple of things to the live shows or tape shows, whatever uh, it may be. You know, you have AEW that's putting wrestlers and, and talent on the sides of the ring just to kind of fill a little bit of, of Nat sound and other stuff. And I think the one thing, though, and I don't know if you agree with this, that, it's, that it has done is that the promos in, in without fans, they don't have those guys and the fans in the crowd to work off. I think the promos have, have been much better in this uh, last month or so. I'll speak to WWE because that's what I uh, almost exclusively watch at this point. I still kind of follow along with AEW, but I thought leading up to WrestleMania, the promos in the empty arena, if you will, were absolutely terrific. And, and I, I've kind of gone back and forth with some of the people that I've had on my show as to why. One, it's probably a little bit less scripted just because they're not micromanaging quite as much. Although I, I reached out and, and found that it wasn't a drastic difference in that regard. Because everyone says, if you have someone who has good verbal abilities, a good character, let them do their own thing. You don't have to necessarily have five different writers word for word planning out what they're going to say because it becomes unnatural. So I think that they've kind of reduced that to an I think the bigger thing is when you're a, a face or even a heel, but particularly with the good guys, when you're cutting a promo in front of a live audience of, you know, eight to 10,000, you're saying lines just to try to get a pop. And then you kind of have to pause and it, it sort of becomes almost silly the way that it's approached it we've seen so many times that it's fallen flat where oh roman go out and say this comical line because the little kids will laugh i think now they're just focused on getting the message across and really getting into the the head of their opponent uh it's not about saying that the people in attendance will pop i think they could be more serious in this we saw um it's just really a preferred way to me cut the promos like they've been doing, which is, you know, don't go out there and try to say something to appeal to the audience that's live. Go out there and say something that will lead to the best promo. Because when you have these video packages that WWE does a great job putting together, you will be able to include some of those sound bites that are just absolutely incredible and sell you on the feud, even without the fans being there to react to the lines that are supposed to elicit the booze or the, the, you know, the pop, every heel comes out and has to bash the town they're in. That's no longer the case. They can kind of get rid of that nonsense and just really more focus on the feud at hand and cutting a promo that's really, if they're looking directly into the face of their opponent, that's what they would say in that scenario. Sean, you had tickets to WrestleMania this year. Obviously, that didn't happen in Tampa the way intended. Uh, go into your own your own personal uh, trouble a little bit. How much trouble it was getting the refund once the show got moved to the Performance Center, and then on the tail end of that, what were your thoughts on WrestleMania at the PC? It was the first ever two night event. So as far as the tickets go, I actually just this week got a uh, a pleasant update in that regard. So let me kind of take you through um, because I had a bit of an interesting situation. I had already purchased a flight down to Tampa and a flight back and through Southwest because the flights technically weren't canceled. Uh, I basically could only get credit for that. So the 400 some dollars that's going to sit in my account for, I believe they extended what the normal period is. I can use it up until basically the end of next summer, I believe, but I'm not going to get that money back. So I'm going to have to you know, fly somewhere else and, and have that 400 some dollars sitting there. 
as far as the tickets, I was a little concerned because I bought one ticket for myself through the WWE friends and family. I happen to have a connection and that was much different than buying it through Ticketmaster or whatever. I sent a check to a particular person at the WWE headquarters. And then when I tried calling and reaching that person, I was unable to do so. So I'm worried that I've sent a check. They don't have my bank account or anything of that nature. And I'm not able to talk to the person to whom this check was sent. Well, the good news is I found out a couple days ago that uh, I actually had put my my parents' address because at the time I wasn't sure where I was going to be living. I guess it arrived uh, earlier this week. So the money has been refunded via check. So I got all the money back. Now, it did take almost a month, but I think that that's not too bad. The fact was I just didn't know because they did not reach out to the people and say we would be refunding. And I've heard some horror stories about some of the secondhand sites that people purchase tickets through where they weren't getting their money back. But I actually also bought tickets to uh, one of the access events that was going to take place on Friday. That was through Ticketmaster. It was like $80. They refunded that uh, pretty quickly, about a, a week or two after the event. So I got all the money back for the t- tickets. Again, the flight, that's a different story, but that's the uh, really in any scenario. As far as WrestleMania itself, I'll say this. I did not want the show to happen, or if they were going to do it, I didn't want them to call it WrestleMania. I think it kind of tarnishes what the first 35 years worked so hard to build, but they made the best of the scenario. In the weeks prior, and people maybe not realizing this, because they've gone to a lot more in-ring action over the last handful of weeks, but leading up to WrestleMania, there was almost none. I believe there was a a Raw where there was maybe one match in three. They realized, I think, uh, once they went to the Performance Center without fans, hey, this is going to be a real struggle to have matches because it just doesn't have the same feel. Well, they found a way to at least make the match is adequate at WrestleMania. I thought that there were some that were mediocre. I thought that there were some that were pretty good. I don't know that I would call any match great, but overall, with the circumstances and the hand that they were dealt, I think WWE did the best they could with WrestleMania. As far as making it two nights, I really think that that's something that they might keep going forward because I think that they can make even more money doing it. I know people watching at home really enjoyed that the action was kind of broken up between two nights. It wasn't seven straight hours where once you get to hours five and six, you're just exhausted. And I know attending WrestleMania 35 in New York, people were just waiting for the main event to end so that they could leave. And that's not how you want a show to kind of play out. Becky Lynch's moment was basically just people heading for the exits because they had been there for seven and a half hours at that point. I think WWE in the future, once they go back to live crowds for WrestleMania, they will really seriously consider doing two nights, I believe, for WrestleMania. Personally, I think it's still best to do it one night and just shorten the show to maybe four to four and a half hours of the actual show in an hour pre-show. I think five and a half hours start to finish would would be uh, okay. I think fans would be willing to sit through that. It's when you get to six plus hours it becomes an issue but overall i would say i think i gave wrestlemania a b grade um going in i probably would have penciled it for a d if not lower but it it exceeded expectations while still coming well short of what a typical wrestlemania would have been sean so vince mcmahon obviously has been uh, talked about a lot a for keeping wrestling in business 
B for the uh, mass layoffs basically on Black Wednesday, and C for everything that's going on with the XFL, which has led to a loss by Oliver Luck. So Vince is obviously no stranger to controversy, but what do you think this past month, month and a half um, has done uh, basically to Vince's reputation? I think uh, most people that didn't like Vince, it probably didn't change their opinion. They've always realized that he's probably not a great person and just a um, conniving businessman. I think, uh, you know, to me, the layoffs, okay, bad timing, no doubt. But, you know, there's not really great timing for layoffs. I understand why they did it, even though they probably didn't need to do it. I thought they brought more bad PR on themselves than they really needed to because, Realistically, the numbers show that they're not saving a ton of money um, by letting go of those superstars. I think one thing it kind of did bring to light for the people who maybe didn't realize is that these are independent contractors. They're not employees. Now, some of the backstage workers, I believe, technically are employees. They, they were furloughed, a lot of the producers and agents, so they could be brought back. Um, but the the independent contractor aspect to me is just a real black guy on professional wrestling and you hope and pray that eventually that changes, but as long as Vince is in control and WWE is really the, the main company, I don't know that it will change. Uh, the XFL stuff, that's disappointing because I actually thought um, I watched a limited amount of, of the action. It seemed like it was well-received and that it at least was going to make it through the first year, and I thought I had a chance to making it to at least a second, if not a third year. Long term, it probably wasn't going to succeed because there really hasn't been any alternatives to the NFL that have lasted too long. But it seemed like they were doing things correctly. Disappointing how it kind of just crumbled so quick. And I don't know all the details with the Oliver Luck thing, but it seems like uh, Vince McMahon probably was trying to save a buck in that scenario. And I guess he, you know, released or fired Oliver Luck before the the league really folded. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of what Vince McMahon does. <laughs> He tries to tries to find any backdoor that he can to save some money. Um, ultimately, again, people who've paid attention to Vince McMahon, they know that he's done stuff like this for 30 plus years. You go back to his steroid scandal back in the 1990s, and he's done a lot of exploitation of professional wrestlers, including women over the years. There's been a litany of wrestlers who have had destructive personal lives as a result, where a lot of the blame could be kind of turned on. Vince McMahon and WWE and how they've treated these superstars. Ultimately, uh, you know, it doesn't change my opinion that much. I will say the biggest issue that I have is Vince and company are saying they're not forcing anyone to come compete during this. And I believe that to be true in the, in the sense that they're not going to fire someone if they don't come to a Raw or SmackDown. But I think everyone realizes, much like Saudi Arabia, if you don't do the show, you're going to be punished in some way. Maybe that doesn't mean being fired maybe that doesn't mean taking a pay cut but you're probably going to be dropped to the bottom of the card or maybe put it in, in just mediocre crappy storylines for a while and to me this is a situation where vince actually probably would have been applauded had he said you know what we're going to take uh, a two-month sabbatical we're going to give our wrestlers time off they can be at home with their families where they need to be during this time we have plenty of content to, to continue to show we will do that we'll still Still bring you the weekly programming. We might mix in some vignettes, but we're not going to have live matches. We're not going to put anyone in risk. We're going to give them a much-deserved break. Um, I think that actually would have won him um, 
in terms of public opinion, some favor. He didn't go that route. So the people who didn't like Vince still don't like Vince. The people who did like Vince probably really aren't going to be too affected by this. Uh, in the end, though, he, he seems like he's always doing something that's raising an eyebrow. That's just how Vince McMahon has been for basically since he bought WWF back in the early 80s. This is Sean Myers of the Five Star Wrestling uh, Podcast of Wrestling. Sean, you mentioned earlier um, that you anticipate WrestleMania becoming a, a two-night event in the future uh, when WWE returns to normal with crowds. Um, are there any other things that the WWE, uh, and even other promotions for that matter, are adopting uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic that you see uh, sticking around long-term uh, as a part of the plans? I believe um, there's a few things, and Kyle talked about the promos and Improving. I would love to fewer promos in front of the live fans when things return. Now, you don't take those out entirely because there's certainly times where it works and you benefit greatly from having those fans there. But I think a lot of the pre-produced promos just come across better when you're, again, not appealing to the fans. I would like to see that because almost everyone, you know, particular, the promos have improved drastically. So find out what works, what allows that, and then make those adjustments accordingly. Maybe it's less micromanaging of the scripts that the, the wrestlers are supposed to use. Maybe, again, it's not pandering to the fans. It's a more serious tone. It's a more direct tone. You're looking directly into the camera or directly into your opponent's eyes. I think the cinematic matches will become a thing that, again, you can use in the right scenario. Let's be honest. I think it's perfect for The Undertaker. I think it's also decent for Bray Wyatt because even going back to when he first debuted, I always thought Bray Wyatt's promos and vignettes that were kind of produced were better than anything that he did in front of the fans because you can make him this larger-than-life character a lot easier when you can use editing effects and stuff like that. So those would be the big things to me. Uh, the matches themselves... I think it's pretty much universally accepted that they really suffer without the fans. So I, I think that that's going to kind of return status quo. But the promos, the cinematic matches, I think are two things that you can kind of keep going forward. And I think we've also seen some wrestlers to show a little bit more personality. Um, I know that AEW is using the, the wrestlers not in matches as kind of the audience. I think that's a cool little touch. And you can maybe do that in some form still going forward. WWE has pretty much just put more people, more wrestlers on commentary, and that's also worked as well. I think Zelina Vega has been terrific in that role, and Asuka has just been stealing the spotlight many times on Raw because she just comes out and screams and makes noise the whole time. So the match isn't taking place in silence, but it's getting her more over in the process. So little things like that. Again, I think the major things are going to be the promos and cinematic matches. And again, WrestleMania, I, I think they saw, okay, it worked having two shorter nights. I, I definitely believe that's a, a recipe that they will continue to follow. Sean, I want to I want to ask you more a broad question here about the state of professional wrestling. I think when when all the elite wrestling came into the fold uh, back in October, if you want to count uh, the all in pay-per-view with the independent show in, in Chicago or if you want to count double or nothing, any of that stuff, when that 
company came in uh, to the fold here. I think one of the big things that Cody Rhodes and, and Tony Khan and all those guys uh, said was, I think professional wrestling is in a state where we need to build new stars. And, and I feel like in WWE, we talk about that all the time with, with Goldberg and Edge and Randy Orton and John Cena and all, all these guys coming back that uh, you know, throw Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker potentially into that mix as well. But uh, just talk about a little bit uh, the idea of maybe building new stars. I think that's something that AEW in, in this time and even WWE to a degree has done pretty well. And whether it's vignettes uh, or with the bubbly bunch episodes that have been on AEW television the last couple of weeks, um, just trying to put faces in front of people that maybe wouldn't get as much airtime on with the normal crowds and and the normal shows, but uh, to try and build more stars for people to get behind and and into a new uh, era, I guess, of professional wrestling to a degree. Well, let me kind of turn this into a question to you, Kyle, because I want to get your thoughts. Do you consider Seth Rollins to be a star of the caliber of generations past with the people leading the way like Stone Cold or The Rock or, or Hulk Hogan. I'm guessing you would say he falls well Yeah, I, I would say no. Yeah, I would say absolutely not. Same with uh, a guy like Roman Reigns, right? Sure, yeah. So to me, those are the people that WWE has put a lot of time and effort into building as their stars. The problem is their stars now just aren't comparing to stars of years past. And I think that's more a problem of there's not being the same amount of interest in professional wrestling, especially among a younger demographic. I can speak having um, watched from 1990 on in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was high school age kids who were so into it and they were getting Raw and SmackDown in particular. Raw was getting about three times the ratings that it had now. And a lot of times that was even going against WCW, which was getting good ratings. So the number of fans watching professional wrestling has plummeted. I don't know that there's one thing that you could has caused that, but the reality is the stars of then, and I think John Cena clearly is one of the top stars of all time, but to me, he was never close to Rock or Austin. So at his peak, John Cena wasn't doing the same numbers as any of those predecessors. I think the stars, while WWE has clearly picked a handful of people to be their, you know, top attractions. It just, they've never reached that superstardom, I think, that uh, past generations have had. So I think that's a bigger issue. You could really look at Baron Corbin and say they have built him tremendously to be a top heel, but it's just not working with the fans. So what could WWE do differently in that scenario? They've put a lot of time and money into him. They've had him, you know, win matches. I don't personally like Baron Corbin, but I think that's kind of the point. But you look late 90s, early 2000s, you could name five or ten guys that I think were really household names. I don't think you could do that anymore in WWE. And part of it's because they haven't people as well. But I think more of it's just there's not as much interest in wrestling, not as many people tuning in. Personally, I, I think that there's some things that they could do better. I look at Kevin Owens. And I think in, in some regards, he could be the second coming of a Stone Cold Steve Austin because that's a guy that you just give a microphone to let him speak out. And I think the rest will be magic. I, I mentioned Stone Cold, maybe a little bit of CM Punk as well, where he could drop, you know, the proverbial pipe bombs. But, but even if that is WWE going to get above three or four million on Monday nights or on Friday nights, I don't know. So how do they bring in 
the fans that were watching 15, 20 years ago that have checked out, not just those fans, but the demographics, that's the bigger question. And I'm not sure that building one or two more stars would necessarily solve that. Sean Myers of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling. Sean, thank you so much for your time giving us about 30 minutes. Thank you. Donnie, it was my pleasure. Coming up, we're going to talk Tiger Payton versus Mickelson and Brady. They're going to play some golf around Memorial Day. Then we'll finish up with Stump the Smelts here on the Come On Network podcast. Another thank you to Sean Myers of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling. Another thank you to Sean Myers, the host of the Five Star Podcast of Wrestling, for joining us on the Come On Network. Now we'll jump into the sport of golf, a little charity event going on expected to take place around Memorial Day. Not a lot of details are set in stone yet, uh, but it is titled The Match Champions for Charity. It is Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning against the pairing of Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady. So two legendary golfers, uh, two legendary NFL quarterbacks facing off, I, I guess, a similar style to what Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson did. Uh, that was last year uh, w- when the two had their, their face off that was, you know, on streaming sites and pay-per-view. This time, though, uh, TNT has said that they will be airing the matchup between the two pairings. So really just a big charity event for, you know, coronavirus and the the victims of this entire pandemic. And not a lot of things are set in stone. But, uh, Jack, I know you're a a bigger golf fan than me, even though that's not saying much. But uh, what are some of your thoughts on the Tiger, Peyton, Mickelson, and Brady golf matchup? Well, I, Donnie, I don't think I can provide a lot of insight when it comes to uh, Tom Brady and Peyton Manning's golf games. Um, maybe uh, you could say Peyton Manning has the advantage there because he's had more time to work on his golf game because he's retired and Tom Brady's still playing football. Um, but when it comes to Tiger and Phil, I thought what they did, uh, what was it, in 2018 with the match pay-per-view was awesome. Uh, that's two guys that you could make a case, uh, for being some of, if not the greatest golfers, uh, to ever walk the face of the earth. Um, Tiger Woods, obviously, you know, back into the mold a little bit, uh, winning a major championship last season, uh, for the first time in, oh gosh, since 2008, I believe. Uh, and then, uh, before that winning for the first time since 2013 at the tour championship, uh, I love Tiger. Uh, I've been golfing since I was three years old. Um, kind of cooled off playing golf a little bit the last couple of years. Uh, internships and other things occupying my time have taken precedent. But still a fan of the sport, still love the sport. And Tiger Woods is the reason why I started playing it. Um, my first set of golf clubs were Tiger Woods Nike uh, Youth Golf Clubs that I think I bought at Target or, or something like that. Um, but when it comes to, you know, breaking down the, the two, I think Tiger, uh, is a better golfer, despite what Phil Mickelson has to say. Phil Mickelson obviously has the bragging rights winning uh, on a 22nd hole, uh, in the match, um, 
that took place a couple of years ago on the pay-per-view event. It was all square and match play after 18 and then uh, a makeshift par three that they played, I think three times or four times. Um, uh, yeah, it was four times uh, to ultimately award Mickelson the winner. So Brady, or excuse me, uh, Tiger Woods uh, in that regard, you know, needs to uh, uh, have a little bit of a comeback, I'd say. Uh, I think that uh, Phil Mickelson's the type to uh, brag a little bit in that regard, and I think Tiger Woods will come back with a little bit more motivation. That was the word I was looking for earlier. Um, and yeah, I, I think Tiger, you combine that with Peyton Manning, you know, perhaps being a little bit better of a golfer cause he's got more time on his hands. Those two might have the advantage. Now it'll be interesting to see how they format it. And you know how we don't have any, that many details yet. Um, you know, how, if Brady and, uh, Manning will be handicapped to Tiger and Phil, I would assume they'd have to be, uh, might be playing on different tees. Uh, there's a whole lot of variables going into it, but I think it's got, uh, a world of potential to be great television, great charity. Uh, the match pay-per-view a couple of years ago was awesome between two of our generation's greatest golfers. And if you throw in two of our generation's greatest quarterbacks, pitting those two against each other on the golf course, because they were uh, countless times throughout their football careers, you know, Colts, Patriots, Broncos, Patriots, uh, it, it's going to be really cool. Uh, and hopefully it, it, it uh, can get off the ground a little bit, you know, despite what's going on with the global pandemic and whatnot. But I think it'll be awesome, and it'll be something that I, I definitely want to watch too. Because Phil Mickelson, too, has come on the scene a little bit on the social media landscape. I think he's a real funny guy, uh, tweeting out some funny videos, talking about how he likes to hit the long ball, having two different drivers, uh, talking a little bit of smack on some other golfers with side bets and side action, things like that. Uh, it'll be really cool. And, uh, I think Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are two cool guys as well. So we'll see. By the way, Manning and Brady play with an eight handicap. So oh, I, I guess they're not quite the golfer that, yeah, according to the ESPN article. Um, so maybe not quite the golfer that Tony Romo is, but, uh, that doesn't seem too bad to me. No. Uh-uh. And, you know, they might, depending on, did they announce what course it'll be at yet or, uh, or no? That, be that is undetermined. Okay, so depending on where they play, um, Joe, I know you're trying to get in there. I'll let you go in a sec. Um, I, I think you'll have to put maybe Brady and Manning on the white tees or the blue tees and have Tiger and Phil play from the tips. Um, but, yeah, I mean, team match play, it, it'll be, there's a world of possibilities for it to make it really, really interesting. I actually heard that uh, the match is going to be played at Scowies, so it's like the par three. Yeah, good one. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I think Bob Barker is going to be involved too. Yeah, Nick Faldo and I won this tournament last year. <laughs> But on a serious note, uh, this is something that in normal circumstances, you'd look at it and be like, okay, we have two professional golfers against two non-professional golfers. Where's the interest here? But in this situation, you're really looking for anything to kind of resemble real sports. And as much of, I guess, a sideshow and not really meant to be taken too seriously thing as this is, it still resembles real sports. It's professional athletes playing in a professional setting, in this case on a professional golf course. And 
right now it, it's seems like the obvious thing to say, but people are really looking for anything to watch to make them feel that sports are still here. And this might not really compare to watching a baseball game or football, basketball, anything of that nature, or even a tour tournament, but it's still something. And we need something at this point. It's for a good cause. It's with four uh, very interesting personalities. That's the thing. These aren't even just players that are great at their sports. They're very interesting to follow outside of sports too, with Manning, known for his sense of humor. Mickelson kind of the same way. Tiger maybe to a lesser extent, but Brady's also kind of a pop culture icon with his marriage to Giselle Bunch and everything like that. And I'm also wondering what effect this might have on the game of golf in general, because if everything goes according to plan, the PGA Tour is going to resume in June, probably well before any other sport does. And ratings are going to go up almost by default. And with this happening, scheduled to happen before the PGA Tour comes back, if this event goes well, does that add interest in the traditional, well, not really traditional because there's no fans, but the more competitive aspect of the game of golf. So I'm excited to see it um, nonetheless. And I'm wondering if maybe watching two golfers and two non-golfers will kind of get people ready to watch uh, real golf uh, when it comes back. And then when that time comes, how far ahead is real golf's interest going to be compared to where it is in a non-pandemic world? So in any case, it's definitely very interesting. It's for a good cause. There's nothing really bad to say about it. But um, in most cases, this would not be something that um, is taking place. But in desperate times, you need something. And this is definitely something that people can watch and be interested in and enjoy for, for a few hours. I'll kind of, uh, I don't know, wrap up this discussion on saying a lot of and echoing a lot of, of what Joe said. I, I think that, and being not a huge golf fan myself, I think that Number one, this is this is huge just in terms of, as Joe said, just having something that resembles live sports on, on television. Uh, I think May 30th or the Memorial Day type uh, weekend or, or area time period, whatever you want to call it, of, of having this event uh, will be closer to potentially when, when sports will start to return uh, to the fold here with everything going on. But I think just in general, it, this is going to come in a time where people are, are thirsty for anything that they can get in terms of sports or any live content that isn't the news or that isn't, you know, anything that's regarding the coronavirus situation uh, and COVID-19 pandemic that uh, I think people are starting to get a little bit sick of. Uh, and I don't want to go into the political nature or the protests that have gone on to open things back up or, or any of that. Uh, but this is a time where, where people are thirsty for something and anything uh, that they can kind of sink their teeth into. I, I think you saw that a little bit with the ratings for the NFL draft uh, being as high as they've ever been um, and, and even better. Uh, you know, obviously, we've discussed that earlier. Uh, again, I, I just think this is, is obviously something that, as Joe said, and, and Jack and even Donnie said, this is a good cause. Uh, it's something to be on the air uh, and, and good for TNT and scooping up the rights to it because that should really draw uh, ratings and, and viewership to their channel. I think it'd be really good if uh, it ends up like Happy Gilmore and Bob Barker, though, and everybody just starts fighting each other. 
Could you imagine if Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, two 40-plus-year-old accomplished athletes, just got really PO'd at each other and started fist fighting? Something tells me that Bruce Arians would not be happy. No, Bruce Arians, no. I don't think Bruce Arians would approve. Has there ever been a fight? Bob Barker claimed... Yeah, Wait. Barker and Gilmore at uh, the the '96 Pro Am. <laughs> oh boy, it'll be it'll be fun. And, yeah, <laughs> I I echo what Kyle said. Uh, it's going to be successful no matter what. I think you could you know put two uh, like turtles out there and have them like race each other, and I think it'll be successful because I, it's, people are craving for something that resembles competitive sport. And uh, you pit two of the best golfers and two of the best quarterbacks, uh, one on each side against each other. It'll be very, very entertaining. Joe's still laughing. Well, he, he better get in the zone because it's time to finish things off. We're going to try to stump the smelts. Uh, Joe talked about his his World Series knowledge coming in, his overall baseball knowledge. So uh, this will be a segment uh, pretty much every time, uh, might not always be baseball, might might be another sport. I think today it'll be uh, three baseball questions coming to Joe. But uh, first, Joe, when you're ready, I uh, just want to run through a little warm-up here j- just to show, uh, j- just to give the listeners a little bit of an, of an illustration, uh, your World Series knowledge. So let me know when you're good. I'm good. All right, 1964 World Series. Cardinals over Yankees, seven games. 1999. Yankees over Braves, four games sweep. 1946. Cardinals over Red Sox, seven games. All right, three for three for the for the smelts in the warm-up. So uh, I'll, I'll start us off, uh, Joe, first question. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. were the first father-son duo to ever be on the same MLB roster during the same season, both playing for the Seattle Mariners. Name the second father-son duo and what team they played for. It was Tim Raines and uh, Tim Raines Jr. And I think it was with Baltimore. That is correct. Now, could you even give the bonus and say what year? 2001. You got it. Four for four. Jack, hit Joe with... Your stump the smelts question. All right, we're throwing it back. In the National League in 1890, many seasons had 12 teams. Which team was boycotted by the 11 other teams who refused to play games in that team's home ballpark? Is that the Providence Grays? It is not. Oof. You want to they had that gambling scandal back in the 80s. Um, I don't know, do you have any hints? Uh, it's from a city that, if you're from Pittsburgh sports, uh, you're familiar with a, a Pittsburgh sports team going up against. Uh, is that the Cleveland Spiders? It is the Cleveland Spiders. And do you know why that they uh, were boycotting their ballpark? Oh, that has something to do with the fact that their owner also owned uh, the St. Louis Cardinals and really kind of uh, kind of uh, shifted all of Cleveland's players to St. Louis. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but 
Yeah, they mentioned that, and they the teams refused to play there also because uh, Cleveland's league park was uh, not enough ticket sales to pay the visiting teams, which uh, was, I guess, a fair issue back then. Yeah, the team also was won 25 games one year. No. Yeah, that's not good. Cy Young pitched for them. Yes, he so. did. Okay, Joe, we're going to go... I'll give you a little bit of World Series handicap here because you know those so well. Uh, Yankees pitcher Don Larson threw a perfect game in the 1956 World Series against the Dodgers. How many Dodgers in that game went to a full count with Don Larson? One. Do you know who it was? Pee Wee Reese. Do you know when it was? Oh, boy. Um... Well, I'm pretty sure he batted leadoff, so I can actually, because it was a perfect game, I can figure out when his at-bats were. So those would have been the first, the fourth, and the seventh. So would it have been the seventh inning? It was the first inning, I believe, if I have my note down correctly, but I'm impressed by the ability to get it as quickly as you did. I have a bonus one for you if you want that for this week. Go ahead. Which slugger in 2008 fell one home run shy of the 500 home run mark for his career? Is that Gary Sheffield? It is Gary Sheffield. And the, the interesting note with the Gary Sheffield thing is that he was suspended for four games in September and the day that he came back from the suspension, he hit two home runs in the game. So he ended up with 499 career home runs, but good for you. Right, because I remember him getting it very early the next season, so I figured that was it. Joe, you are something else, man. Almost a perfect uh, on the first edition of Stump the Smelts. Had, had a little trouble with the uh, Jack Hilgrove question, but that wasn't even in the 20th century, let alone the 21st century uh for trivia but gentlemen another good one thanks for hopping along again come on network episode two we had sean myers on earlier uh the host of the five-star podcast of wrestling we broke down the nfl draft uh what the steelers did uh we talked about gronk to tampa bay the wrestling world and how that has continued to go through this pandemic uh, the, the golf event, the golf charity event will be taking place around Memorial Day is when they said it. And then a few quiz questions for our very own Joe Smelter. Before we go, uh, come on network available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, another thank you to Anchor, a great resource for anyone looking to start podcasting. Anchor will do everything for free. That's right, absolutely free. Anchor will post your podcast onto various platforms, track your listeners, even match you with sponsors. And finally, follow us on Twitter. Come on, NetPod, C-O-M-O-N-N-E-T-P-O-D. Some great content. Try to get some great content every single day on Twitter, so make sure to shoot us a follow. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and come on. 